ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. This is where the big boys play, huh? This is where the big boys play. Hi everyone, you're listening to Where the Big Boys Play. We're going to review Starcade 87 today. Uh, as ever, I'm here with Chad. Say hello, Chad. Hi, everybody. And uh, we have a, a special guest today. From Los Angeles, California, weighing in at 219 pounds. Uh, Solomon, uh, known as King Solomon on the boards. Say hi, uh, Solomon. Hey, everybody out there, TV Lamb. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so, Solomon, uh, you, you've been listening to some of these shows, and uh, since um, since we don't have Brian with us anymore, we're going to have a kind of policy of uh, kind of a, a rotating third chair. And uh, first in that hot seat is uh, is Solomon today. Um, and I, I thought it'd be a good idea just before we get into the show, um, just to learn a little bit about uh, a little bit more about you, Solomon. So. I understand you're from uh, California. Yeah, from Los Angeles, uh, born and raised here, um, 38 years old, so I started watching uh, wrestling in 19, early 1983. Um, the WWF came out here about uh, January, December 82, January 83. Before that, we had uh, Mike LaBelle's promotion, the LA uh, promotion, which was, by that time, it was just pathetic. Yeah. So... I didn't. I started watching wrestling one day. I'm, you know, I'm watching cartoons in the morning, and then I put it on Channel Nine out here, and I see Big John Stud uh, ringside with Vince McMahon in an interview, and I'm like, "What is this?" And I remember them giving out some ratings for the title, and then some of the first wrestlers I saw were Jimmy Snuka. He immediately became my favorite. Uh, Bob Backlund, and I know a lot of Backlund gets a lot of heat from fans, but he he was one of my favorites starting out, and I'm not a superstar. So I just started watching. I was hooked instantly. Uh, it was like love at first sight. So I started watching in 83. I didn't go to any shows that year. And they, at that time, they were running shows at the Olympic and sports arena alternating. So when 84 came along, um, my first show I went out to was at the Olympic Auditorium and headlined by Piper and Snuka. And to this day, I mean, I've gone to several shows since. I've never felt heat like that that night with Piper and Snuka in that main event. That's so a, I start. That's a pretty famous venue, isn't it? The uh... the Olympic. Yeah, yeah, it's a church now. Actually, it's a it's a Korean church. So if you drive out along the freeway, which I do every day to work, you'll see it on the left side of the ten freeway, and it's a church. But uh, yeah, so my grandpa used to go to all the Wednesday night and Friday night um, wrestling shows when it was the NWA, and when you know we had Classy Freddie Blassie, John Tolis, uh, Mil Mascaras, and uh, Gordon and Goliath. So he used to go to all the the Wednesday and Friday night shows. He even went to the big Coliseum show, 1971, uh, Blassie against Tolis. Yeah, no, uh, <clears throat> I once made a thread on uh, PWO. How come there's never been a big promotion uh, on the West Coast? That uh, was my question on there. And I got uh, I got something of an education of, uh, you know, how the, there did actually used to be a pretty big scene there. And then it died a death in the late 70s, as you said. Um, and yeah, what, yeah. Would it be fair to say that ever since that early 80s period that um, California has pretty much been a WWF state, like even even through the uh, WCW years? Yeah, I think when WCW and the uh, with the NWO, that kind of broke that somewhat. I remember going to the forum for some shows uh, for a Saturday. There was supposed to be a Monday Nitro, though, but they changed it to Saturday Nitro. Um, so that kind of broke it briefly. But by and large, it's been a WWF town. Um, in the 80s, you, I mean, we just had monthly shows at the sports arena, whereas uh, Crockett would come out here every few months. I actually went to the bat, the Great American Bash in 1988 at the Forum, and they had a World Games match there, so that was pretty cool. Yeah, well, well, we'll, we'll definitely have to have you on for that one when we get to it. <laughs> um, what, one of my questions was going to be, how, how did you develop as a kind of wrestling fan? You know, so you obviously you started off watching uh, WF. Did you stay a WWF fan? Well, yeah, I... I didn't know anything about any other promotion. To me, from 83 all the way to the first week after WrestleMania 1, I knew nothing about I thought the WWF was the only game in town. And then after the week after WrestleMania 1, I'm watching WWF Championship Wrestling, 
and I started flipping through the channels after that, so we're looking for more wrestling, because at that time I was, you know, I was addicted to it, and I come across, uh, on channel 56 over here, which was the UHF station, I see Ricky Steamboat and Megan TA in a tag team against some jobbers, and I, so because Steamboat was there, he was already in the WWF, but little did I know that we were getting Crockett shows like three months behind, so I'm thinking this is still WWF, and I'm like, who's this Megan TA guy? And who's James J. Dillon? Who's Davey Dahl and Tully Blatcher? And I'm thinking, this has got to be WWF. But by the end of the show, they referenced the NWA. And at that point, I knew that it wasn't the WWF. And my first impression was, this is Bush League. It's minor league. I wasn't impressed at all. I hated it. But something kept me coming back week after week. And by the end of 1985, I was a hardcore NWA fan. And I really didn't like the WWF that much anymore. Wow. And in this... Yeah, in this time I discovered the AWA, so I was a big AWA fan, you know, the World Wars with Martel, because we had the Pro Wrestling USA show out here. Uh, so that was really shortly after WrestleMania, too. So after WrestleMania, I just discovered World Class, AWA, Mid-South, because it was on WTBS briefly, um, you know, Crockett, and you know, the WWF was on the low end of the totem pole for me by that point. So, so I, I mean, I, I remember a different thread I made once was like a random week, you know, a random week in 1986 all of the different TV that would be on. I don't know if you've ever seen that thread, but, um, like, your kind of Friday or sat your I think it was the Saturday morning, right, where you could literally watch about three or four hours of wrestling plus. Oh, easily, yeah. Easily, even more than that, because I'd watch Pro Wrestling USA, then WWF Championship Wrestling, and then Worldwide, and then watch the TBS stuff, which is about probably three hours on Saturday. And then at nighttime, like midnight, I'd watch uh, All-Star Wrestling, WWF All-Star, which was on uh, Channel 11 out here, or Channel 9. And um, so that was my Saturday. And then, of course, you know, you had primetime wrestling during the week, TNT, and you had the AWA ESPN show. Uh, or then World Class, you'd have that on UHF here. So, I mean, my mom hated me. <laughs> That's all I would do is watch wrestling on the weekends. And, and did you, I mean, uh, most kind of long-term fans have had periods where they've been totally out of it and haven't watched anything. Have you ever had a period where you, you kind of just went off whatever was happening and um, had some years in the wilderness, or did, have you been a fan all the way through? Yeah, uh, after the Great American Bash in 90, after Sting won the title, and not because of Sting, because I actually liked Sting at that time, but I think at, after that, I kind of lost interest. Um, part of it was just because the product wasn't as exciting to me. And then another part of it was just, you know, I was 16, I was getting into the girls playing football and, and stuff like that. So I was, from that point uh, up until probably 95, I was off and on. Mm -hmm. But I would still, you know, I got back into it again briefly in 92. But um, really from 90 to 95, I was kind of off and on. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people have a kind of black spot in, in those years there. Um, Mine is a little bit later, but, um, yeah, I mean, 94 and 95 are kind of dark years, aren't they, for a lot of, for a lot of, for a lot of fans. Um, and it, it is difficult to maintain having any semblance of a social life or credibility and being a hardcore wrestling fan. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Chad, do you have any questions for, uh, for Solomon before we carry on here? Uh, no, I'll just say with uh, Solomon... Uh, growing up in L.A., kind of the time where he started becoming a fan, I feel sort of parallels uh, when I sort of became a fan in the region I did in Georgia because a lot of times I really wish I was a little bit older uh, so I would have been able to see Georgia Championship Wrestling in its heyday and even uh, when WCW was running real frequently like if I'd have been 16 and 17 years old when they were running center stage, I can assume I'd be going to a lot of those uh, television tapings, but uh, uh, what can you do? <laughs> you sort of sort of feels like you missed out on some, but you can't really change anything about that. Yeah, that's how it kind of feels too. Is But then if I would have been older, I mean, uh, like I was telling you guys earlier, the LA promotion was just, it was dead on its butt by the time Vince came in. So I don't know what I would have watched. I guess I, you know, we didn't have cable at the time until a little later, so I know Georgia Championship Wrestling was, was on at that time, but there was nothing out here for fans until Vince came in. Hmm. It's really unfortunate, the lack of footage for the uh, L.A. promotion, too. Um, I know uh, 
you know, for instance, there's a good many matches documented with Chavo Guerrero and Terry Funk. Uh, when Terry Funk was the NWA champion, I think those would have been great matches to watch. And uh, there's just very, very little footage that's surfaced out from there. Yeah, a lot of it's just raw footage. I have some of that. And then there's some of the TV tapings, but they're in Spanish. But you do get Piper there. I have some of the Piper stuff when the promotion was kind of on a downward trend. But Piper and, and the Guerrero's were a bright spot there. And I think like older guys from... Uh that area I really think of um, John Tolos as being a, a real legend you know I just think of him as the coach to be honest I don't know anything else about him but um, it, like apparently he's a, he's a he was a big time worker there people um, he seems to have respect from people of a certain generation from that area yeah they, they did the Monsel powder angle in 71 and that's what led to the big stadium show at the Coliseum where they drew like 25 to 27,000 fans uh, him and Blassie so that was like pretty legendary out here in, in fact, it, I mean, it wasn't. A, I don't think it was in L.A., but I happened to see a, um, a, Fl- a Freddie Blassie match on a random uh, 1984 edition of TNT. I was watching the other day. Um, it was. I uh, can't remember who he was facing now. Uh, Leone or someone from uh, 1952. But uh, um, yeah, Baron. Yeah, but Baron Leone. He he actually looked like a pretty decent worker uh, in his time. Freddie Blassie. It, it 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 really surprised me how good that match was from 52. Like it was a lot, um, it's a lot faster than your kind of uh, Dory Funk Jr. '70s stuff. Yeah, Freddie Blassie was a good worker in his younger days. By the time he actually uh, was out here in LA and he did that whole angle in 1971, he was already, I think, 50, 52 years old working still. Really? So yeah, he was pretty so up there by the time. The he was already uh, in his it, 60s. Yeah, I guess a lot of the workers back in the seventies and the early days, they could work a lot. They worked a lot longer. I mean, you remember Crusher and Dick the Bruiser were already, uh, you know, in their mid forties in the seventies and main eventing still. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, but I guess in the AWA, uh, being over fifty was kind of a requirement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was prerequisite. <laughs> So I, I have been watching a little bit of AWA recently, actually. There's a lot of kind of, there's a strange mix of really young, greener guys and uh, <laughs> kind of guys in their mid-50s. Um, yeah, they definitely let you get a little up there in age before you can get in. So um, let's uh, kind of um, transition then to looking uh, at uh, Starcade 87 and... Um, one of the things going into the show is that quite a number of the titles changed. I think um, I think the tag titles changed hands uh, between Great American Bash '87, where uh, Chad and I left off last time, um, and also I think the um, did the TV title change? No. Yes. No, no, the world title. Sorry, the the world title changed. Um, hand. So, have you seen the TV from this uh, kind of uh, period in between um, the Bash and Starcade, Solomon? Yeah, I think I saw it from I saw it from the point where they were uh, uh, showing vignettes of Garvin training for his uh, to get the title from Flair, where he would do those uh, kind of swimming in the lake or working out. That from that point uh, on, I saw the TV up until Starcade and even beyond that. So I kind of got a feel about. Kind of the mood and the promotion going into Starcade. So, 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 can you fill us in on some of the details? Like, um, how did the uh, how did the kind of title switch come about? Um, and I guess then you can uh, tell us a little bit about the tag titles too. Well, with, oh, as far as Garvin goes, I remember the the vignettes where they were really uh, showing him, you know, working out. And the, so I remember him swimming in a lake, and they would show him doing like you know leg presses and. They're really pushing for him, like uh, like kind of pushing him for his title quest. And I remember even them cutting in uh, on the WTBS show, cutting into like uh, Detroit where he won the title. It's kind of breaking news, you know. Ronnie Garvin wins the title. I think that was a September of '87. Uh, so they were really pushing it hard, Garvin winning the title. And uh, as far as the tag titles go, from what I remember, and I remember the beginning of the year, Rude and Fernandez had the titles. I think they dropped them to the Rock and Rolls. And then I'm not very clear as to when 
or where the Anderson and Blanchard won the titles. But I know they did in between, I believe it was in between the Bash and Starcade, but I think it was closer to the Bash than to Starcade where they won the titles. And I know Luger already had the U.S. title for, that he won from Nikita at the Bash. And as far as the TV title goes, Koloff, um, I don't remember where he, where and when he won that title. Yeah, I can't even remember who the TV champ was. Uh, was it Arn? Was Arn the TV champ at some point in, uh, in, in 87? That sounds like it might be accurate. I don't know for sure. I know at one time, wasn't he the national champ in 86? And then he lost it to Wahoo, who then merged it with uh, Nikita when they merged the U.S. and national titles. But I don't know when he had the TV title in 87 or if he had it in 87. I don't remember. Yeah, maybe maybe we can... Uh, maybe one of it was uh, Tully Blanchard. Oh, it was Tully. Nikita won it August 17th, 1987. Uh, he, um, so that's when Nikita won it. And then the uh, tag team championship, uh, it, it was Fernandez and Rude at the beginning of the year. Uh, the Rock and Rolls won uh, in May 26, 1987, uh, which is actually a phantom uh, title win. They announced that they beat them, but they uh, Rude left for the WWF, so they never was actually a match for that title change. Right. And then Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard won the title September 29th, 1987. So that's really kind of right in between the uh, Bash and Starcade. Right. I, I, I'm just seeing here, Anderson did actually have a run in 86. He lost it to T Dusty, and then Tully won it, and then dropped it to Nikita. So, there we are. Um... I don't actually think the TV title should have uh, ever changed hands at a live event. That's just me. Should always be defended on TV, I reckon. But um, there we are. Uh, the, the, the other thing uh, to talk about, just going into this, um, is the is the uh, just before we came on, uh, just before we started recording here, uh, Solomon and I were talking about the UWF takeover. And yeah, you've got some views on that, uh, Solomon. Do you wanna? Share them. Yeah, uh, you know, I remember watching the TV at the time, and at the time, I didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. I didn't know the politics, but I think, you know, in my opinion, the first mistake Crockett and Dusty made was even purchasing UWF, and then by them not able to get like you know sign on DiBiase, which I thought that was the prime kind of talent there in the UWF. Once they got the UWF, I don't think, and I think pretty much it's kind of most people agree with this, that they didn't really maximize the talent. And, of course, they then folded up the UWF with, with really a whimper because everybody was expecting a, a title-versus-title unification match with Dr. Death and Flair. Um, I thought, you know, by the time the UWF was absorbed into Crockett or bought by Crockett, I thought the UWF really lost some steam, you know, with Duggan leaving, the Fantastics. Uh, DiBiase was in Japan a lot of the time, so they're their roster really had kind of weakened by the time that uh, Crockett bought it out. I think it was in May or April of 87. And so I thought that was the beginning of a, a number of mistakes that Crockett made um, in relation to the UWF. One wasn't pushing. Uh, I mean, if you watch the TV leading up to Starcade, they buried Terry Taylor. I mean, they're, they're giving him no, sh no shot to beat Nikita. And I'm thinking, well, uh, we know Nikita's going to win. But at least build up your opponent so that when he does win, it means a little more than what it did. Yeah, I, and I've got more to say about that particular situation uh, later on. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because if you buy a company um, in the kind of weird psychology of wrestling, and we we actually see history repeat itself years later, where with the um, when Vince bought WCW, um, the tendency in the kind of wrestling mindset is to basically just bury the company that you just bought. Um, and it basically happens here in 87 and it happens it happened again when they did when they botched the invasion angle in 2001. Um, it's, it's, it's a strange thing but then why would you I, I guess it may be too um, subtle for 
kind of wrestling minds to think, well, we need to build these guys up in order to, even if we are going to have the final victory, we need to give them something in the meantime, you know? Yeah, it would have been nice to see a, a Dr. Death Flair unification match, maybe even a Starcade instead of what we got, even though um, I, I don't know how you end that match, you know, how, how you do it without hurting Dr. Death. You know, obviously Flair is going to come out the winner, but it would have been nice to see something like that, you know. Um, I remember just at the time, you know, I was a mark at the time, so when I thought the UWF was a separate entity the whole time, I just thought they were working with the NWA, and then... Um, then when one of the Pro Wrestling Illustrateds came out and said, well, the UWF is now defunct, I just remember thinking, man, another territory uh, disappears. That was my thought at the time. I didn't know what was going on behind the scenes until later on. And I'm reading the kind of Meltzer's from around this time. He is pretty pissed off that um, that they decided to make the UWF defunct because um, he, he basically thinks that promotion was healthy enough to, to keep open and that you know there's basically no reason to close it at all so that was inter that's interesting um, because my understanding is that the UWF were actually going out of business like uh, Bill Watts was doing pretty well for quite a long time but then the um, was it the oil industry was uh, suffering uh, suffering around that time and that created a kind of kind of mini economic uh, problem in that area um, which meant that they weren't drawing as well as they usually do. Is that broadly right? Yeah, that's part of it. I think another part of it is when Vince came in and he started running shows in that area, he didn't do well at all but you, someone made a good point on one of the message boards on, on K-Fave Memories, I think, that they, they mentioned that Vince didn't really have to do well when he came in. All he had to do was take a little bit of, the fa uh, of Watts' fan base away and chip at it and then the new fans that were coming up, they were going to have the option of WWF or Mid-South. And so I think that's what hurt Watts too. Not only that, but, you know, Junkyard Dog left. And that really, if you watch some of the um, Irish Neil uh, TV tapings in Mid-South from 84 to 85, you notice a change in the demographic of fans where you would see a lot of African-American fans when Junkyard Dog was there. Whereas later on, you don't see those, nearly as many of those fans anymore. And that really hurt them in the Louisiana area. Yeah, you can see. So, so, so. I mean, looking back at it, was it a good idea to kind of close UWF down if you're Crockett after you've bought? So, put it, even putting aside the question of buying it, was it a good idea then to just merge the talent with their existing roster, or would you have tried well, to carry it going? You know, carry on running UWF. Looking back now, I would have tried to carry it on because to give it some freshness. Uh, I think this is at a time, and I didn't notice this when I was watching it at the time, I was just enjoying it, but looking back now, you know, and Meltzer mentions it too, that they were just getting stale. So it would have been nice maybe if they could even switch a couple of the uh, regular NWA guys over to being UWF guys and just kind of have that interpromotional angle um, and try to stretch it out as much as they could just to give the fans something fresh. But then if you do that, you miss out on some things that, that did happen in 88. They were kind of cool. So it's just kind of, you can go both ways on that. Okay. Well, d d maybe this will come up over the course of looking at uh, Starcade as well. So d why don't we get into it? I should I should mention um, that for the first two matches here, uh, we're going to have to do a little switcheroo because my wife um, has thrown out my uh, has thrown out the first two pages of my notes. <laughs> um, <which laughs> I wasn't too thrilled about. Um, so... Chad is actually on play-by-play uh, -play duty today, at least until match three. <laughs> yeah, this seems like uh, the one show where our, uh, our wives all had a hand in it, because uh, Parr's wife deleted his notes, my wife is sick right now, so we were a little late starting, and uh, Solomon actually got his wife to watch the show, <laughs> which uh, I don't know what bribery methods he had to use for that, but congrats <laughs> to him. Uh, but, uh, so Starcade 87 was, uh, November 26, 1987. It was Thanksgiving night. This is actually the last, uh, Thanksgiving night show of Starcade. Um, and it's kind of an end of the era for the NWA portion because, uh, in this territory in Georgia, in the Carolinas, 
Thanksgiving night was always a big wrestling night, so this sort of was the end of that. Of course, there was a few uh, more Survivor Series that happened on Thanksgiving night or even Thanksgiving Eve, but NWA-wise, this was the end of the year. And uh, it's in Chicago, Illinois, which is a little bit of a uh, difference from where all our shows have been taking place geographically so far, mostly in the southeast. Uh, so we see them in a kind of new area in the UIC Pavilion. Our first match of the evening is a, a six-man tag featuring the fabulous Freebirds of Michael Hayes and Jimmy Jim Garvin, along with their tag team partner Sting, versus Rick Steiner, Eddie Gilbert, and Larry Sabisco. Uh, so right away you see a lot of the uh, UWF guys in the opening six-man tag as you have Michael Hayes, Eddie Gilbert, Rick Steiner, and Sting as carryovers from that promotion. And this is also our first look at Larry Sabisco. This match mainly featured a uh, kind of standard six-man tag formula. Uh, a couple of notes that I had, it was really weird to hear Sting come out to Bad Street USA right out of the bat. Uh, that was kind of bizarre way for him to come out. Sting cleaned house really early, uh, hit a dive on the outside and a missile drop kick, and the crowd was going nuts. Uh, they continued, the face team just continued to beat up on Sabisco and Steiner. The heels would sort of rotate in and the face would get quick moves on them. So the heels were not able to gain an advantage uh, until they finally uh, wedged Jimmy Jam Garvin in the corner and began to work him over. At this point, we get a seven-minute time limit call by Tom Miller, which I thought was very bizarre. Uh, and then they transition to start working over Garvin's back. So this is pretty basic uh, heat-type stuff. Um, and then, at this point, I guess we should uh, discuss that we, for this tape, we watched the two-hour VHS release. Yeah. So, in later matches, it's very obvious that there is some clipping where they'll just cut right into the match. Uh, this match did not line up with the time calls, uh, but it was only off. Uh, for instance, this match ends in a 15-minute draw. We probably get, I would say, 14 minutes or 14 minutes, 15 seconds of action. So I'm not quite sure if in this particular match, if it was just a cut time short or if they did a actually decent clip job because I couldn't tell right offhand. Uh, the finish of this match, eventually Garvin hot tags in Sting. Uh, he gets slung over the top rope by Gilbert, which is missed by the referee. And then Rick Steiner applies a sleeper to Sting, uh, but he rams him into the corner. A pier six erupts at the end, and Michael Hayes gives a great bulldog on Larry Sabisco, where Sabisco flips completely over. Uh, and that's really, I would say, the... Uh, the heat point of the match, and this is about 14 minutes in, so the last minute is sort of anticlimactic, where Rick Steiner gets the ability to barely suplex, and then there's a couple of pinfall reversals as the time limit runs out. I thought this was a decent six-man, a uh, real good job getting the crowd hot. The crowd was really hot for this match. A really good showcase of Sting, and everybody else played their roles well. Uh, what did you guys think? Well, I agree. I like the six-man and, and tag teams usually to open a pay-per-view. I think it gets the crowd going because there's usually a little more action in those. So, um, yeah, and I thought it was really kind of a coming-out party for Sting where, I mean, I remember it was the first time I really saw him uh, in a match of any meaning, and I was kind of impressed with him. How come the... Um uh, Freebirds were uh, face here. I, I mean, I think that's mainly just a carryover from Garvin turning face, and then when Hayes entered in from the UWF, he sort of. I mean, I, I I don't think I've watched the UWF footage from right at the very end. I know I've seen a lot of '86 where Gordy was still in the UWF and trading the belt with uh, Doctor Death. And at that point, Hayes was still a heel on color. I don't know if he turned face right at the tail end of the run, but uh, I, I don't know. I think it's just they may have introduced him as Garvin's partner. 
Yeah, I think they were tweeners in the last days of the UWF. They were going against Akbar's army and, and against Dr. Death and Baby Aussie. So when they came into the NWA, I think they were just full-fledged faces from what I could remember. Okay. One of the things you didn't mention, Chad, is that about at least four of the 14 minutes of this match um, consists of Michael Hayes doing a moonwalk <laughs> and stopping <laughs> and generally, uh, generally kind of hyping the crowd, which he's very good at doing. But um, yeah, he really goes for it during during this match. Yeah, I, I, I did think to Solomon's point that to me uh, the main thing, I guess, the main takeaway from this match was Sting. Uh, he really looked like a star here. Uh, definitely a little rough around the edges uh, with his power moves, a little sloppy. So he wasn't real polished. Uh, even at this point, he didn't get much more polished later on, but especially here. Uh, but the crowd was just absolutely ballistic for him. When he did that dive to the outside and the missile drop kick in the early going, he just really seemed like a character that even this early uh, was destined for startle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, out of all of the people on the card, considering he's kind of buried in a six-man tag here, He's easily in the top two or three most over guys on the card, I'd argue. I'd, I'd argue yeah, I agree. The pop he gets is probably as big as the pop Dusty gets later, for example. Yeah, I agree. I did. The crowd was definitely hot for him. Paul, did you think this was a good match or a decent match, or what did you fall in on this one that you can remember? <laughs> to be honest, I can only remember that moonwalk. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it definitely wasn't... I mean, I'm sure there's been hundreds of six-mans like this. It wasn't groundbreaking or anything like that, but uh, for an introduction to the pay-per-view, I thought it was pretty well done. It, it, was, it, was, it was decent. It was decent. I, um, not, not particularly memorable, apart from uh, Sting, really. Um, but yeah, it was fine. Yeah, I like the match. I wish, I wish there would have been a clean pin, but other than that, I, I liked it. I thought it was good for the purpose is served, which is to get the crowd going for the pay-per-view. Right. Okay, our second match uh, is memorable kind of in another direction. It is Barry Windham and Dr. Death Steve Williams uh, for the UWF Championship, which on the surface, just looking at the card, this would have been one I would have really been anticipating because yeah. uh, these are two big guys that could go. Wyndham at this point in time was a great worker. Uh, Williams had developed into, uh, he definitely could be carried to a great match if need be. Uh, so this match, uh, Steve Williams comes out in his Oklahoma jersey, which of course gets Ross on commentary. There's a lot of Oklahoma comments sprinkled around. They're ranked number one in the country at this time, so Ross gladly gloats about that. Uh, and it's it's a face-versus-face match, but neither guy, I would say, gets a great reaction from the crowd. I don't know if they're unfamiliar. I'm, I would assume they're unfamiliar with Dr. Death, but I don't really know why the reaction was so tepid for Barry Wyndham. Um, and this match, again, is one that the time that's on Wikipedia doesn't exactly line up to the time on the tape, uh, but it was only off by a few seconds, so I'm unsure of what the deal was there. This match is completely bizarre. Um, it starts out with some crisscrosses, rope running, and then a, a big press slam by Steve Williams. And then they get into a little amateur wrestling scuffle where they kind of ride each other around the mat uh, and stuff like that. And that, that was kind of funny while they were doing that. They went to the outside, actually, for a complete restart. And Tony Schiavone, uh, who I should mention is the color commentator, commentator on this show, uh, Jim Ross is the play-by-play -play man. But he uh, says this could be one of the greatest scientific matches of all time, which I thought was an interesting comment. Uh, while the crowd was chanting boring, so that was even better. Uh, and then this match basically just follows a very weird formula where you have a couple minutes of action followed by a complete restart. Uh, you get a back suplex by Williams out of a chin lock, and then they stare at each other. 
a gutter inch suplex by Wyndham, and they stare at each other. There really has no flow to this match. Uh, the five-minute time call uh, was made, and I thought, honestly, they'd been wrestling for about 15 minutes. Uh, and then right after that, we go straight to the finish where Wyndham goes for a dive, uh, flies over the rope, and then hits the table on the outside and an impressive move by him. Uh, but Williams, as soon as Wyndham gathers himself and gets right back in the ring, Dr. Death rolls him up and gets the one, two, three. Uh, which, it, this is a completely weird match. I did not remember this match, and this was a match where these are two guys I've really come around on. Uh, you know, in the last, especially Dr. Death, he's the guy I've really came around on in the past few years, uh, that I may have not have recognized this match before, but this was honestly, I think, one of the worst matches I've seen these guys have. Uh, just no flow, a really weird structure, crowd didn't really care, uh, they booed the finish. Just an overall bizarre match, and I don't quite know, uh, what the problem was. Solomon, your thoughts? Well, yeah, I think, well, especially in the I mean, in the 80s, it's really tough doing a babyface versus babyface match with, in, in that type of setting. If you're going to put it on a, a big show like that, it was two guys of those of that caliber because you're, you have to work it where the guys aren't really uh, going after each other. So you're doing it in kind of like where they're doing that amateur trying to ride each other. So it's just, it's really hard, in those, especially in the 80s, to do a babyface versus babyface match. It's hard to pull it off. I enjoy them, but, you know, as you could tell, the crowd was chanting boring because they're not doing the usually, they're not doing the usual heat-getting moves or heat-getting maneuvers um, to get the crowd involved. So I thought it was, yeah, I thought, I'm like you, I thought it was uh, uh, not one of the finer moments for two guys who I consider great workers. Especially at that time, Barry Wyndham was at the top of his game, and Steve Young—I mean, Steve Williams—was coming into his own. Um, <clears throat> I thought the ending—I kind of liked the ending, the way they did it, and the way they played it on TV. It seemed like they were then after on the TV after the match, after the show, that they were leaning towards Williams going hill. It never came to fruition until a year later. But so I kind of liked the ending. How Williams kind of you know didn't play the sportsman, uh, but the match itself, yeah, uh, I, it was. Part of what do you think? Um, yeah, I, I did. I mean, this is where my notes start, and I just said uh, this is a very sloppy match. Um, and I thought it was a real off night for Williams. The, the one thing I can remember is that um, <laughs> wait, what's that uh, move that Williams called at the three point stance or Oklahoma Stampede? I guess they call it. <laughs> when when um, when Williams did that, Jim Ross on commentary almost basically kind of ejaculated in his pants. <laughs> he, he, he got kind of, uh, you know, Austin excited for that move. Like, he, that's probably the most animated he got in the first half of the show. Um, but yeah, I thought this was, uh, uh, I think Meltzer's right when he says it's atrocious. Yeah, it was It was just a very, uh, I mean, just, I, I, I see what, what Solomon is saying with the face versus face matchup. Uh, you could see that here where there was a lot of kind of, uh, you know, sportsman type aspects in the beginning with the restarts. They were practically uh, one step away from handshaking after everything. Uh, but there was no sustained body work, really no story told, and it made the match just overall disappointing. Yeah, it's, 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 I mean, a lot of the times um, when you get kind of face versus face matches in this um, time frame, apart from the kind of the really famous ones like uh, uh, Hogan, uh, Warrior, say, um, most of the time, one of the two guys will sort of just for the one match play the heel role, um, even if they, even if it's not an actual heel turn. Structurally within the match, they're basically playing the heel, um, and here nobody did that. They, they both, but guess you know, they both played true blue baby faces and. Um, yeah, I mean, that that sucks as a contest. You know, Especially on a big stage like that. They could have gone a different way. They could have gone out for like a all-out kind of amateur-style, um, you know, real match. 
kind of scientific matchup, but it didn't really happen for whatever reason. Anyway, um, uh, we'll uh, Chad and I will switch back to our usual roles, which, um, given the uh, quality of my analysis, is probably for the best. <laughs> um, we we're going into the third uh, the third matchup now, which is the Midnight Express uh, versus the Rock and Roll Express, um, and. It's a uh, Nether Skywalker's match, uh, a scaffold, uh, a scaffold match. Um, the Midnight's are still with Big Bubba, um, and they have a pretty good uh, heel heat. And uh, Cornette is back, and uh, I'm basically dreading going into this uh, yet more kind of scaffold bullshit from the Midnight's. Um, I actually have a theory that Cornette pushed for these scaffold <laughs> matches because. They seem to be involved in more scaffold matches than anyone else, pretty much. Uh, as the match starts, Big Bubba is lurking about, and he, uh, he takes out Ricky Morton with a boss man slam uh, before he's even made it to the scaffold. So it's a two-on-one scenario, um, which is pretty interesting to start off with. Um, weirdly, uh, I think it's Shivani on commentary mentions that the scaffold is made of manganese, <laughs> which... Uh, <laughs> and not made of silver, as if, as if anybody thought that the scaffold was made of pure silver. Um, Morton recovers uh, from the bossman slam and gets the racket and actually makes it up to the scaffold. Um, the Midnights use salt um, and their usual kind of tactics uh, to gain the advantage. Um, Eaton obtains Cornette's racket, but uh, then loses it. Uh, I basically hate scaffold matches. Um, so I'm not going to give you a blow-by-blow -blow count here because it's just the usual uh, stuff up there on the scaffold. Um, before long, Stan Lane drops and um, the um, JCP cameras manage to miss it somehow. Um, the Rock and Roll Express have, have the racket back. Um, they beat Eaton 2-on-1 until he drops. <sighs> Fuck's sake. Um, stupidly, now Big Bubba goes up um, to face Morton, so Bubba goes up to the scaffold, which is a terrible idea. Um, but uh, Morton sneakily kind of nails him with a low blow and then runs away. So we don't see Bubba drop down. So, um, Shah, what do you think? Um, I'm with you. Scaffold matches are certainly not my favorite at all. Uh, this one I thought was going along. Uh, pretty well in the beginning, a uh, boss man was able to hit his slam, and that was good. And then Ricky Morton was able to retrieve the the uh, tennis racket from Cornette and scaled the ladder, and was really wailing on people with that. And you had some solid uh, beginning psychology with them, kind of uh, gathering their bearings on top of the scaffold. Uh, but it, it just went on way too long. That was the main problem with this. Is once once you get on the scaffold, you're so limited with the amount of moves and actions that you can do uh, that there's really no excuse, I think, for the action on top of the scaffold to be more than uh, really four or five minutes, actually. And here we've got probably eight or nine minutes uh, where after the 40th tennis racket shot, or, you know, Bobby Eaton or Stan Lane or whoever just basically laying on the scaffold with somebody acting like they're about to throw them off. It, it just gets really old. Uh, we did get some color uh, from the rock and roll of Robert Gibson, which I can't remember many occasions where he bleeds, uh, but he got some color here. Uh, but overall, I mean, it, certainly this type of match would have been much better suited as just a standard match between these four. So, pretty disappointing. Solomon? Yeah, I'm um, with you guys. Never liked the scaffold matches. I mean, I like this one better than the year before with the Road Warriors and Midnight Express, just because, I mean, I think because uh, Rock and Roll, you know, they're smaller guys, so they could do more things up there with the limited space they have. Um, but yeah, I'm with you. Scaffold matches are just this. There's nothing you can do, especially with two teams that are known as being great workers. If they would have just had a regular standard match, I'm sure they would have put on a 
you know, a much better performance than what they were able to do on the scaffold. Um, yeah, I caught that too, that they missed that drop. I think it was when Lane dropped, when he got, I think, one kicked him off or, um, and they missed that. So that was some bad camera work, but yeah, it was, and from what I understand, the titles weren't on the line here, right? The U.S. title. No, titles. yeah, they made a uh, mention that it was non-title, so. Right. So yeah, I mean, I've seen, of the scaffold matches I've seen, I like this one probably the best, but that's not saying much. I mean, because they usually, they're just awful. My question here is, if you're Jim Cornette, or if you're the Midnight, why do do they keep on signing up to these matches when they always, always lose them? Like, they've had about four of these matches now, and they haven't won a single one. (laughs) Like, you'd you'd think they'd get the hint that they're not very good at them. Um, Yeah, or they... Yeah, that's de- that's definitely something to think about there. And, uh, and the other thing, I, d- I don't know if you two were, were uh, thought the same as this, but I was actually hoping that for the entire match, Bubba would somehow and Cornette would somehow stop Morton from going up. I think that would have been really interesting if if they'd um, managed to isolate Gibson in a two-on-one scenario for the whole match and actually got a cheap heel win or or something. That would have been more interesting than what we got. I was actually hoping that Morton wouldn't actually make it up there. <laughs> yeah, or even if one of the baby faces would have, like, if they'd have thrown uh, either Ricky or Robert off. That's the other problem with the, the two Starcade scaffold matches is the baby faces, uh, one, have, once the first heel person is thrown off, and in both occasions, both heels just get thrown off in the two Starcade scaffold matches. Yeah. So there's really no suspense. Uh, once the first heel gets thrown off, they have an advantage. Uh, so then the uh, match really is deflated. Uh, this just—I I definitely see this as the type of match where, even seven or eight years down the line, this would have been a ladder match or something else. Uh, yeah. That just the type of gimmick matches that evolved. Uh, this would not have been a scaffold match for sure. Now, I couldn't help but notice that the crowd really didn't give a shit about this match. And all through the night, they the crowd were interesting. Is that a Chicago thing? Like, are they are they known, like, Philly crowds as being a little bit smarkier than your average crowd? Because they're an interesting crowd here. Yeah, a- absolutely. I would say probably Chicago, uh, Philadelphia, New York, and uh, your Canadian crowds are probably going to be the ones in the U.S. to go, or really U.S. and Canada, to go kind of off script more than any other crowd. Yeah, part of it I wonder was uh, the Rock and Roll Express. I know a lot of it was written in the Observer at this time that their heat was really their, they were starting to lose some steam, whereas in 1986 they were just, you know, out of this world popular, and then, you know, and then the second half of 87 seemed like they were starting to lose some of that. Yeah, I, I wonder if being champs are actually part of their, you know, how some people kind of need the belts to kind of have steam in that way. Do you think the fact that they were now kind of actually being shunted down to the U.S. tag division, <laughs> um, you know, they've gone from being world champs to being to fighting for the U.S. titles. Do you think that may have had something to do with them losing momentum? Yeah, it could have. And, you know, I wonder, too, part of it was, you know, Chicago, they were kind of known as being a, you know, meat and potatoes town. I, I don't know if they maybe, maybe they didn't take kindly to the, the pretty boy Rock and Roll Express. I don't know if that factored in to the lack of, a, you know, response that they, I would normally see them get in the Carolinas and the traditional JCP uh, arenas. I still think it's ridiculous that either Morton or Gibson were ever considered pretty boys for anyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Alright, all um, so going into the next match, I can't help but notice that Earl Hebner is still in the NWA, um, which means there must be absolutely no gap between this and him starting at WWF, because the twin referee angle is literally February 8th, and we're here right at the end of November 87, so... Within a month, Hebner must be gone. Um, oh. Oh, hold on a second, I'm being rung by my wife. Hold on.
Alright, there we are. I have to explain that I'm in the middle of uh, recording a wrestling podcast. Um, <laughs> so, match number four is uh, Nikita Koloff versus Terry Taylor, who's got Eddie Gilbert with him. Um, and this is the unification match for the NWA TV title, uh, which Nikita holds, and the UWF TV title, which uh, Terry Taylor holds. Um, Nikita has funky music, um, as, does mo- as do most people on the show. Um, that is clearly kind of dubbed in in post-production or something. Uh, it's clearly not going out live, this music. Um, it, I don't know if you agree with that. It, it, it's definitely not live, this music, right? Yeah, there was a lot of generic uh, kind of sounding uh, music that you could sort of hear the canned uh, crowd heat to. So. Yeah. I, now... As we were going into this match, I was thinking to myself, if Taylor wins this, I'll eat my own scrotum. Um, and, uh, well, let's see how this turns out. We start off with an arm drag from Nikita, um, and things are pretty tentative. Um, Taylor gets an arm bar, but Nikita reverses it. Um, Jim Ross says that Nikita is so strong that an arm bar becomes a submission move. Um, Nikita must have he- <laughs> Nikita must have heard Jim Ross because he keeps it synced in quite some time. Um, Taylor tries coming back with a with a headbutt, but Nikita's having none of it, and uh, Taylor gets a face full of turnbuckle for his trouble. Nikita goes back to the armbar, um, and he sits in that for a bit too long for my taste. Um, Taylor bails, and uh, Hot Stuff um, massages his arm in a nice moment between the heels. Um, there's a bit of a nose-to-nose and uh, shoving now, but Nikita's just destroying Taylor's arm. Um, this is being booked as quite uh, quite a mismatch. Um, you know, it, it's like Nikita's the Superman and Taylor's not, be, not able to get anything out of him at all. Um, finally, Taylor gets his knees up, um, and it suggested that the momentum's going to change. But uh, it's just a hope spot, um, bizarrely. Uh, and Nikita goes back to the armbar. Taylor goes to the eyes um, uh, around the 10 minute mark, but still Nikita comes back and um, reapplies the armbar. Shivani starts to criticize Taylor's um, game plan here, and Ross says that this strategy is all wrong. Uh, I can't help but agree with them, because uh, whatever Taylor's doing here is not working. Um, Taylor attempts a nether comeback, um, but his, all his offense is no soul, and Nikita does a kind of road warrior style, sticking out of the tongue and kind of screaming, uh, you know, in the manner of Hawk. Um, he gets carried away, though, and misses a sickle. And finally, we get a transition. Um, that's the longest shine sequence in history, uh, I think. I don't think I've ever seen a shine sequence last as long as that. Um, Taylor works Nikita over outside the uh, ring using the fence. He brings him back in. We get a snap bear, uh, a snap mare. We get a knee drop. That gets a two count. Taylor goes for a suplex, but uh, he's not getting it. Uh, that's reversed. We're told that 15 minutes remain. Nikita draws Taylor, and uh, then he gets um, the five punches, kind of in the turnbuckle spot. Taylor gets an inverted atomic uh, drop. Um, Tempers are flaring now, and uh, Taylor argues with Earl Hebner. Um, he got him in a uh, sunset flip, but uh, no, doesn't get a, gets a two count. Um, Taylor goes for a pile driver, but uh, Nikita Koloff is not uh, selling a pile driver today. It's reversed into a backdrop, um, and um, Nikita's basically just giving Taylor nothing all the way through this match. Finally, Gilbert nails Nikita's leg with a chair, and um, Taylor applies the figure four. He uses the ropes uh, and Gilbert for leverage. Um, Ross says that he'll have to break Nikita's leg before he submits. Il Hepner spots the fact that the uh, that Taylor is cheating, and um, Taylor is fucking pissed now. Gilbert kind of wrangles with Nikita, but Nikita's not having any of it, and kind of shoves uh, Gilbert off. Then we get a sickle on Taylor, and uh, this one is over. We have a new unified TV champ, um, and Nikita uh, 
is the winner. So what do you guys think of this? Is this a burial or is it a smartly booked match? Solomon, I'll let you go first on this one. Yeah, I, I think it was a burial. I didn't like the leading up to the, the match and the promos for Starcade eighty seven, it just seemed like everybody that had an opinion on it, you know, when they would cut you know, they'd talk to Magnum, even Ric Flair being a hill, Barry Taylor, uh, when they would, you know, do the Starcade eighty seven, you know, promos, you know, Flair would mention the match and Barry Taylor. So you could tell leading up to this that they were ready to just, you know, have Nikita demolish them and kind of run them over. I didn't like the match. I didn't like, uh, this is really the first time I noticed that Nikita just really didn't look the same. I was used to Nikita having the kind of that physical, uh, intimidating presence. And this is, uh, the first time I noticed he had kind of dropped a noticeable amount of weight. And that was the one thing I thought Nikita had going for him was his look. And I never really, you know, his in-ring work was never great. So that combined with him starting to lose his look, uh, the way they booked the match, Barry and Taylor, I've always liked Taylor as a worker. I just, I, I didn't like this match at all. Chad? Uh, I, I don't know why Nikita Koloff, I know he is uh, Dusty's project, and Dusty, of course, is the booker, but... You would think Dusty would play to his strengths more because this is the second show in the row uh, where we see a long Nikita Limwork showcase match. Uh, we saw his match versus Lex Luger on the Great American Bash show, and now we see this one. And I'm even I'm more I'm more conflicted with this one. I can see uh, some people that would like it because it does tell a clear, concise story uh, with the arm work. But it, again, I think it was just drawn out way too long. It's about a 17-minute match that would have been a lot better served in the 11 to 12-minute range. Uh, kind of in the same amount of time that the Buddy Landell, Terry Taylor, Starcade match was given. That kind of type of match would have been better served here. Uh, so I didn't really enjoy this match much either. Big pop for Nikita winning, though. That was nice. Yeah. I like the general idea of this match. I, uh, the general idea of the story. I Like, there's a coherent um, through line here that Taylor goes to all the usual... He plays... He does all the usual kind of heel tricks to change momentum. And each time, the momentum doesn't change. So it's like all the things that you expect in a wrestling match don't happen. Uh, which is kind of interesting. But, um, I do think that Nikita basically um, bitched out Taylor a bit too much here, and it hurt the match, especially when 90% of his offense was an armbar. Um, he came across like a 20-minute squash match. Um, yeah, like, I understand what they were going for here, but I, I think they drew it out far too long, and the transition probably should have happened earlier, and it should have been stronger. So. Um, do you know those spots where I mentioned where um, the suplex and the pile driver would were reversed by Nikita? I think the match would have been a lot better if Taylor would hit those moves at that point, just to give him something, you know. Well, I had read in a book that uh, that Taylor was really on Dusty's bad side by this point, and Dusty just had it out for him. I guess it's something about Taylor doing impersonations of Dusty on the airplane, and he didn't think Dusty could hear him. That was in a Howard Brody's book, Swimming with Sharks. So that's kind of what I've heard of why Taylor was really kind of buried. But um, who knows what the truth is. Yeah, I, 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 this is one of the most one-sided matches I can remember watching. Um, the, the, in fact, the only one which is more one-sided that I can think of is one of the Hogan versus Flair matches that we'll see in 94. Um, Anyway, uh, so I, I think we're all broadly agreed here that, that this uh, this match wasn't uh, wasn't very good, um, and uh, Dave Meltzer gives it one star. Do you think that's fair? Do you think it deserves more than that? He gave it what? He gave it one star. I I mean I would I would give it a little more than that because I do think the uh, the concept was well done. Uh, I mean, the storyline they were do it. They didn't betray the story they were trying to tell. It was just not. They shouldn't have been going that long to begin with. The match should have been shorter. 
so, I mean, I, I would definitely say two stars, but it was dull. Uh, but I, I mean, this match really may be the most conflicting match for me that we've watched because they, there's a lot of elements sprinkled in here that I really enjoy with my wrestling. I mean, some of my favorite matches have featured a lot of story uh, telling techniques that were utilized here, but uh, it just didn't come together for me. Uh, so a real conflicting match. Well, thank you very much, guys, and uh, join us again uh, on Where the Big Boys Play. Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage, for Cowboy Bill Watts and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody. <laughs>